Today's reading is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It can be found on page 891 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live by, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. All right, if you guys would join me in a word of prayer. Our God of grace, we come into this room and we are hungry. We read about you fasting for 40 days and how famished you were then. Some of us come in here now with, with similar hungers, yearning maybe for a sense of belonging, hungry for community, maybe hungry to hear words of affirmation, words of acceptance, things that maybe we haven't heard in a long time. And God, we, we also have spiritual hungers. Lord, if, if we're in this room right now, it's because we're hungering to, to find something deeper. Holy Spirit, we ask that you show up in this room and, and feed that hunger. We look to you because we, on, we know that only you can satisfy those longings, those hungers that we have. Amen. If there's one institution that really understands how temptation works in our world today, I think it's advertising. <laughs> Advertisers know how to tempt us into buying their products, into spending on the things that they think that we need in our lives. And so in preparation for uh, the service today, I looked up temptation ads on Google and found some really interesting ones. And uh, well, most of them were for chocolate. Uh, some really old school ones, like uh, there's one up here. Everybody yields to temptation chocolates. <laughs> this is like from, from you know, old school, 20s, 30s. There's a more recent one uh, that, I don't know if you can read it. It's for M&M's. It says, a temptation worth God's wrath. <laughs> peanut, peanut chocolate M&M's. <laughs> and it's got the little M&M like the, like the apple right there. Um, yeah, so that was, those were some of the more entertaining chocolate ones. Uh, another maybe 10% or so were for steamy romance novels that had temptation in the title. Uh, some of them were, my favorites at least, were Lost in Temptation 
or uh, Texas Wild and Beyond Temptation. <laughs> or, my personal favorite was To Tempt an Irish Rogue. <laughs> and, and they all have these pictures of like really buff, like half shirtless men. And we're, we're not putting those slides up there. Um, sorry, ladies. But, uh, and then the rest of them were for this TV show called Temptation Island, which is, I guess, about four couples who are flown to a tropical paradise and then surrounded by really, really attractive single men and women whose like, purpose is apparently to tempt one partner away from the other. That, this is, I guess, America's television at its finest. Um, but clearly, our culture doesn't take the idea of temptation that seriously, you know, if we play around with it in advertisements and reality TV shows. But all of these things actually do a good job of getting at what is at the heart of temptation. They show us what temptation looks like. It's that little tug at your gut, or your appetite, you know, or your pride, or your heart. It's that little voice that says, look, you can have what you want. You actually deserve to have what you want. You deserve to be happy. You can have your cake and eat it too. I think sometimes temptation can sound like the voice of Tom and Donna from the show Parks and Rec. They have their little catchphrase. Yeah, say it. Treat yourself. Treat yourself. If you see something that you want, treat yourself. Buy it. Treat yourself. You deserve to have what you want. They have this special day where once a year they go out and they buy whatever they want. And they say, treat yourself. This is treat yourself day. You can buy this. You can get that. You can do this. You give in to your temptations when you treat yourself. And at the heart of temptation is our desire to maximize our own pleasure, our own gain, at minimal cost to ourselves. We want to treat ourselves. And if we can, we want to treat ourselves on somebody else's dime. We want our full paycheck, but maybe we don't want to work all 40 hours for it, so maybe we're given to temptation to fudge our time card a little bit. We can have the maximum reward without as much effort as we would maybe want to put into it. If you're a student, you want the A in the class, but maybe you don't necessarily want to do all the hard work of studying and understanding the material, so there's this temptation to cheat. A while back, I was doing some work at Sac State, and there was a table of students sitting right next to me talking very loudly about their best cheating strategies that they've had. And I think the best one was a, a student downloaded this screen-sharing software so that when he was taking his exam in class, it looked like he was typing the answers, but his friend was back in the dorm doing the exam for him. <laughs> and I was like, man, like, you might not want to talk about that this loudly in the library where everybody can hear you. But, you know, wanting the grade without necessarily wanting to put in all the effort. Temptation is our desire to serve ourselves, to satisfy our desires and appetites at minimal cost. Even if we know in our head that what we're doing isn't good for us in the long run, or maybe that it's even hurting somebody else along the way, the bottom line is we want what we want. We want what we want. And no amount of head knowledge or warnings is going to stop that yearning, that tug, that desire towards that thing that we want. And that's what makes Christ's story of temptation in the wilderness actually a little bit frustrating sometimes. Because it's very inspiring. You know, Christ, he's been fasting for 40 days and he's hungry, and yet he's still able to say no. You know, he turns down the devil's very tempting offers. But it's kind of frustrating because all of us have times in our lives that we can remember where we don't live up to that. And so we read this story and we're like, is, is that supposed to be the standard? 
Is, is it supposed to be that, that being a Christian is getting really good at Bible memory so that we have the, the Bible memory verses to say back to the devil when we get tempted? Is that what we're supposed to do, work really hard to follow this really high standard that Jesus set? Is it, uh, is it even reasonable for us to expect that we can follow this example? Well, according to uh, one of Dostoevsky's most famous characters in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, no, this is not a reasonable expectation. In fact, he would say that this is a cruel burden that God puts on humanity. This novel tells the story of this horrible, horribly dysfunctional family. In it, one of the brothers, Ivan, has become this cold, cynical atheist. He's fed up with the cruelty that he's gotten from their abusive father. And he's fed up with all the evil and the pain that he sees in the world around him. And he decides that there can't possibly be a God, a loving God that exists in a world as broken as this. Meanwhile, his younger brother, Alyosha, has taken a very different approach to life. Alyosha has joined a monastery, and he, he is so full of optimism and hope and love for humanity throughout the story, and it's very warm and encouraging, and this kind of attitude drives Ivan crazy. It infuriates him to see his younger brother living like this. And so one day he comes to Alyosha and he tells him a story. Ivan figures that Christians have these parables from the Bible, uh, and so he wants to come up with his own atheist version of a parable that's going to disprove Christianity. Uh, it's going to prove to Alyosha that there's no way a good God could ever exist in a world so full of evil. And the story is called The Grand Inquisitor. And it goes like this. You know, the, the setting is a small town in Spain in the 1500s. It's during the height of the Spanish Inquisition, so we see the Roman Catholic Church is cracking down on heretics and uh, locking up and burning people at the stake that, that fall out of line with their version of what Christianity is all about. And one day, Jesus Christ himself walks into this small town, and he starts performing little miracles here and there, and he starts teaching about love and grace and acceptance, and eventually crowds start gathering to him, and he, he's gaining this massive following. And while all of this is going on, the 90-year-old wizened cardinal who's in charge of this town hears about what's going on, and he is intent on shutting it down immediately. He sends his, his guards out to seize Jesus, lock him up, and prepare for, uh, prepares him for this grand inquisition. And so while Jesus is locked up in this cell, the cardinal comes up to him, and he starts to explain about how Jesus' ministry is actually at odds with the work of the church, that things have changed since Jesus left. The cardinal reminds Jesus of the time that he was tempted by Satan in the desert. And he points out that actually Jesus should have taken Satan's offer. He says, Jesus, you should have turned all the stones in the world to bread. And then you could have solved world hunger. Don't you realize that if you, if you turned all these stones into bread and you fed the hungry, then you would have control over the crowds. People would come from miles around to you if you could give them bread. And if they did that, then you could control them. You should have done that. Then you would have had way more followers. He points out, Jesus, he, he says, you should have jumped off the pinnacle of the temple and proved to everybody that you were God's son. <laughs> then you wouldn't have had to go through all the pain of dying and doing all of this. You would have had everybody believe in you. We wouldn't have to suffer this doubt that we feel, wondering, are we actually putting our faith in the right person? We would have proof. 
Jesus, you should have jumped off. Now, now don't you see that because you didn't, we all have to wrestle with these doubts? The Grand Inquisitor says, Jesus, you should have knelt down and worshipped Satan because then all the kingdoms of the world would have been yours and you would have had all the power. And if you had all the power, then you could control the way people live so that they don't do the selfish and hurtful things that they do now. You would have had the power to make people live the way that you want them to live and then there would be no more evil in the world. Jesus, don't you realize you should have knelt down? You should have given in to Satan's offer. Ultimately, the Inquisitor points out that when Jesus resisted the devil's temptation, he was setting humanity up for failure. He was showing us that we actually have free will, that we can make our own choices, that we can choose what we want to do with our lives, and then the Inquisitor says, look around and look what people have chosen to do. They have chosen to do horrible things with their lives. Why have you given humanity this choice? So the cardinal explains that he cannot let Jesus go because now the church is trying to make up for Jesus' mistake. The church is trying to give out bread and control the masses and the crowds of people. The cardinal wants to be the one in charge of controlling the way people live. The cardinal is trying to take away people's free will and consolidate the church's power since it's been clearly proven that people can't handle this kind of freedom. People always give in to their temptations, so the cardinal is trying to take those away. And he's trying to recreate the world the way that he wants it to be. He sees that people always choose selfishness. It's thrown the world into chaos, and his mission is now to bring peace through power. And to quote the story directly, and, and this quote is in your worship guide, uh, if you have that in front of you, the cardinal says to Jesus that nothing has ever been more insufferable for man and human society than freedom. And so my question for us today is this. Is the Grand Inquisitor right? Is he right? Are we too weak to resist temptation? Would we actually be better off without freedom? <laughs> Are we doomed to fail when it comes to matters of our own self-control? Well, if we look at the story of the Bible, we might not actually be immediately hopeful because it's filled with stories of people giving in to temptation. Like what we read in our call to confession today, the, in the very beginning we see the first case of temptation as Adam and Eve are enticed by the serpent's invitation to eat from this forbidden fruit and to gain this new mysterious knowledge. In this case, they give in to that little tug in their gut. They choose to eat the fruit. And it actually ended up having disastrous consequences for them and for all of humanity afterwards. And I think it's funny, too, how humanity's first temptation and Christ's first temptation both have to do with food. For Adam and Eve, it was around this forbidden fruit. For Jesus, it was around uh, bread, turning stones into bread. And it makes me wonder if Satan, I think, was the first one to realize that the way to a person's heart is through their stomach. Like, really, like, it, if you can satisfy somebody's physical hungers, it's a lot easier to lead them the way that you want them to go. Later on in the Bible, we see the Israelites give in to their temptation to worship idols all over the place. You know, they, they've just been freed from slavery in Egypt. They're going through the desert, and they come to this mountain where God decides to, to encounter uh, Moses and give him the law. And while Moses is up there receiving the law, you might know this story, the Israelites are at the bottom of the mountain. They can't wait. They need something to worship. So they throw together all their gold and they create this golden calf that they all bow down to. 
right after they get freed from uh, slavery and while Moses is up there talking with God at the same time. They give in to that temptation to serve something else. Uh, As they enter the promised land, they give in to this temptation to set up altars and idols here and to adopt the, the gods of the other nations. They give in to this temptation again and again and again. And later on, we see King David give in to his temptation to sleep with Bathsheba, murdering her husband in the process. There's disastrous consequences to this lapse in self-control and this giving in to temptation. And we see it last through generations. David's family is never the same after that. There's chaos that spirals from these actions. And if you were to pause and look back at your life, I bet you can remember a time where you gave in to some sort of temptation. That tug in your gut or your heart or your pride. And maybe you know very clearly what the consequences to that are, that lack of self-control. Maybe you're still living with the results of that decision today. Does this mean that we are all hopeless in the face of temptation? Are we all doomed (laughs) to fail? Can we not handle the responsibility of having freedom? Can we ever follow Christ's example and stand up to the devil's enticing offers? Well, there's a few different ways to look at this. There's a a strict religious answer to this that might say, yes, you can resist temptation if, if you are strong enough, if you really, really dedicate and commit yourself to this road of moral perfection, you can resist temptation. You must remain constantly vigilant, though, and work hard to stay on this straight and narrow path. And if you ever do find yourself giving in to temptation, You need to make sure that you punish yourself adequately so that you learn your lesson and that you don't make the same mistake again. You've got to be strong and moral. And if you are, then you can resist temptation. That would be a strict religious answer to that question. On the other hand, there's this very strict, overly non-religious answer to this that Ivan Karamazov would probably say, and that's, no, you can't resist temptation, so why even bother trying? In fact, temptation is just something that religious people made up to spoil your fun. Temptation is is nothing more than your body's natural urges, so you should just give in to them. Eat what you want to eat. Sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. If you have the opportunity to uh, steal some money from your company and take it for yourself, go for it. Honestly, that's just you being smart and resourceful. That's you looking after yourself. You should be able to treat yourself. But the answer that we get from the gospel is something entirely different. When we ask ourselves the question, can we follow Christ's example and resist temptation, the gospel doesn't give us a yes or a no answer. The gospel actually changes the question. The gospel tells us that Jesus didn't come to set an example, that we all need to work really hard to follow. The gospel tells us that he actually came to take our place. And so the question isn't, can we follow Christ's example? The question now is, are we willing to let Christ take our place? Are we willing to let him stand where we stand? That's the heart of the gospel, is Christ taking our place. And he takes our place in the seat of punishment. And in doing so, he makes a place for us in God's family. The Apostle Paul lays out what this looks like for us beautifully in the book of Romans. And it's sort of a long passage, so I'm I'm just going to paraphrase it for us here. But he says, We see that sin entered the world through one man, by Adam's failure in the face of temptation. 
And because of this, death came to all people. But now in Christ, we see that his strength in the face of temptation made him the perfect substitute for us. He died in our place and took on the penalty for our failure. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. But not only this, if we are united with him in his death, then we are also united with him in his resurrection. For united with him in his death, that takes away our guilt. That means we're also united with him in his resurrection. That gives us eternal life. The gospel tells us that being a Christian means being united with Christ. And that means that all of our guilt from falling into temptation has now been paid for. And that you now have the right to an incredible gift of eternal life with God that you did not earn, but something that was given to you. That's true for the people in the past, and it's true for us now. Adam and Eve, they couldn't resist temptation of of food that was offered to them by the serpent. But Christ did. Christ did resist that temptation from the devil. So Jesus, we see now, is the new and the perfect Adam. He makes up for Adam's failure. He more than makes up for Adam's failure. And he opens up a way for all of us to experience life instead of constantly living in the fear of the shadow of death. Israel couldn't resist the temptation to worship other gods, and they bowed down to an idol in the desert, but Christ never did. So Christ more than makes up for their failure. We see that Jesus is the new and perfect Israel. Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people, these ambassadors to the world to share the good news of God's love for the world, to make the world a better place, more like the world that God envisioned. But they failed. But Jesus didn't. Jesus worked more than makes up for their failure to be God's ambassadors because he is the perfect ambassador. You and I have all failed to resist temptation at some point or another in our lives. We've given in to that tug at our gut or our heart or our pride. But Christ never did. So we see Jesus is our perfect substitute. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. Jesus didn't give in to temptation like we do. That's because at his heart, his heart is fundamentally different than ours. Our our greatest temptation is always to serve ourselves, to satisfy our wants, the things that we long for. But Christ's entire life was centered around serving God and serving others. His heart was entirely outwardly focused, whereas ours are constantly wanting to point inwards to serve ourselves. While our hearts are fundamentally selfish, always looking for ways to satisfy our inward desires, we see Jesus' heart is fundamentally selfless, always looking for ways to serve the needs of others. That's the key to understanding the story of Christ's temptation in the wilderness. We see that's where the devil tries to get at him. We see the devil trying to tempt Jesus into serving himself. He's trying to change the direction of Jesus' heart from being externally focused on serving and loving God and others to being internally focused, to looking for ways that he could serve himself and make his life easier. We see Jesus' miraculous power in other parts of the gospel. We see that Jesus can feed 5,000 people. It'd be easy for him to feed just one. We see Jesus healing the sick. We see Jesus doing all these incredible things with, with these, this divine sort of power, but he always does it in service of others. We never see Jesus do the things that, uh, that Jim Carrey does when he has God's power and Bruce Almighty. 
Uh, if, if you remember the movie, he uses this newfound God status to uh, get himself a sweet car and clear out traffic so that he can drive where he wants to go. He uses his power to ruin his coworker's career because he is spiteful and wants to take out his coworker and give himself this promotion. You know, he does all sorts of things with, with these godly powers to serve himself and his wants. He's focusing on his needs, the things that he wants. But we never see Jesus do anything like this. He is constantly serving others. He never uses his divinity for himself. He is always selfless. He is always using his gifts in service of the Father and in service of the people around him. But in this temptation story, we see the devil trying to get Jesus to fall into our pattern of thinking of, of how can I maximize my benefits in this situation at little or no cost to me? You know, what's the easiest way for me to get what I want? And that's what makes the devil's final offer so tempting. Because he's offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, everything, without having to go through the pain of death and crucifixion. Maximum success, minimal cost. All Jesus has to do is kneel. But he doesn't. His heart is fixed by love. It only moves outward towards God's and others, never inwards. His heart is never self-serving. He is not trying to get out of the mission that he started, and he knows that this mission involves and requires sacrifice. So once Jesus sends the devil away, his heart continues to move him out of the desert on the long and gradual road to the cross. And that's where our journey of Lent puts us to, on this long and gradual road to the cross. Lent started on Wednesday, uh, on Ash Wednesday, I don't know if any of you guys went to a service and got the ashes, but it's the beginning of this 40-day season where the church recognizes that we are in this direction towards something incredible, towards Christ's crucifixion and death on Good Friday, which then sets the stage for the incredible joy and hope that we have on Easter Sunday morning. During this season of Lent, the church has traditionally taken on a few practices that helps shape our hearts to be more like Christ, less inwardly focused on meeting our wants and more outwardly focused on loving and serving others. And these practices are fasting, reading scripture, and prayer. Three things. And we don't take on these practices because we feel this need that we need to be good example followers, that we need to, to do these things because that's a way for, for us to earn our place in God's family. No, we, we've already talked about that's not what God's people need to do to earn love. No, we practice these things because they are a way for us to latch on to and experience God's grace. God's grace that frees us from our self-destructive inward desires and reorients our hearts towards love. It's the same orientation that Alyosha had to his brother Ivan after he heard this this atheist parable where Ivan thinks he just struck a great point and just shattered his brother's beliefs. His brother actually moves towards him and he gives him an embrace. He gives him a brotherly kiss. He gives him a sign of love. And Ivan is completely broken by that. He has no idea how to respond to something like this. He's like, what? No, I just, I just went, for the, went for the jugular. I went for the kill. I, I went to like, ruin your, your view of God and you, you still move towards me in love. <laughs> and the rest of the book sort of tracks Ivan's just uh, 
just confusion around this. Like, he doesn't know how to handle it. It just completely rocked his world, and the rest of the book sort of follows his grappling with this, this mystery of experiencing love in the midst of uh, a hateful attack. That's the direction that we move our hearts to be going. That's the direction our hearts move in Lent, outward, towards others, service, love, outwards, the same direction that Christ's heart was constantly moving. So when we fast, we read scripture and pray, we move away from our selfish way of living and we lean into this new outward-focused life in and with Christ. And so fasting, when we fast, we are intentionally saying no to the things that our, our, our hungry bodies want. You know, uh, we are weaning ourselves off of selfishness as we fast. Some people fast from food. It doesn't have to be food. Maybe some folks fast from food one day a week or maybe even just one meal a week. Or sometimes people fast from certain kinds of food or just junk food. Or, or maybe if, if those chocolate ads really like, got to your heart, maybe giving up chocolate might be a good thing to do for Lent. Some people fast from social media or television or entertainment or other kinds of, of things like that. Some people fast from complaining. There's all sorts of things that we can give up because in all of these cases, fasting is a way for us to help redirect, redirect our hearts from being constantly inwardly focused on how can I meet and serve my needs to being more outwardly focused. And while this season of Lent encourages us to take on the practice of fasting, this, this practice that empties ourselves of something, it also encourages us to take on a practice of reading scripture. Like Jesus said in the text, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So as we empty ourselves of something, we end up uh, filling ourselves as we read scripture. We empty ourselves of our selfish, self-serving desires, and we fill ourselves with God's word that is fundamentally loving. If you read it, you find again and again that it's moving us outwards to service, to love, to look at the world and see where can I move towards that pain, towards that darkness, and bring hope, bring love, bring healing. And finally, we take on the practice of praying. We open ourselves up to God in prayer and we ask him to take away our selfish tendencies. We ask him to fill us with love because these things do not come naturally for us. If we have a lifetime of wanting our needs to be met, it's not gonna happen immediately that we're, we're all of a sudden these completely selfless people. No, we, we pray for strength to take on these Lenten practices because fasting is not easy. Getting scripture into our hearts is not easy. It's not comfortable. We pray for the Spirit's help in this transformation process because we, we, we pray for a greater capacity to love others because this can be really hard for us, especially if it calls for us to love somebody that we really, really don't want to love. Really, God? Like, I gotta love that person? <laughs> like, really? That's hard. And it's not gonna happen overnight. And that's, that's the beauty of, uh, of Lent being 40 days long. We recognize that it's a long transformational process. We know that this is the road that we'll be slowly walking down as a church for this upcoming season. And thankfully, we do these practices together as a church, as a community. We don't have to feel like we have to do these things alone. That'd be really intimidating. Thankfully, we have each other that we can talk to, that we can share, hey, you know, like, I I've been really wrestling with this, I've been giving into this temptation again and again and again, and I don't know what to do about it. 
Can you help me? We have each other as sisters and brothers to walk this long, long road that goes to the cross. That's not an easy destination. That's where we're supposed to go. I wouldn't want to go there alone. <laughs> I'm glad I'm looking out and I see all these people that, we, that, that can walk with me, that we can do this together. And it's a long way out, but we know that it goes to someplace painful of the cross, but we know that on the other side, there's something incredibly, incredibly better. We know that there's Easter Sunday. We know that there's Christ's resurrection. The reason that we're all here this Sunday morning, that the church has always gathered on Sunday mornings for the last 2,000 years. Now, this is, this is a great road to walk. It's difficult, but we're here to do it together. It's this, this road away from the temptation to be self-serving and the road towards love, love for each other, love for the world, and love for God. Please join me in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we give in to our wants so easily. We, we oftentimes don't even think about it. That's, that's where our hearts are. But we know that you can transform us. <laughs> Holy Spirit, as, as we enter into this season of Lent, this long, long road of transformation, we ask that you would give us patience because we're so used to seeing immediate results. We ask that you would give us determination and endurance. We ask that you would give us humility to talk with people about things that are actually going on in our lives. We ask that you would give us bravery to open up and be vulnerable. We ask that you would give us the selfless kind of love that, that seeks to help and serve others, uh, especially as we look around, just, just our sisters and brothers here, Lord. How can we help and serve one another in this road? Maybe as we look around at our, our coworkers or our neighbors and just think, how can I be uh, setting aside my needs and my desires to take care of theirs? May we do that, Lord, by your grace. Amen.